that if there's something that resonates with what you know to be true or that raises a question for you um, that's really important to look into um, through your own attention and mindfulness and care, then it becomes really an engaged and alive practice for yourself. And tonight's talk, usually I have a kind of preparation I take sometime before Monday night and do a kind of crafted talk with some theme and poems and various things like that. And tonight I was going to give a talk, which I'll do some part of, on a, on a Buddhist text, which I don't do that often on Monday night, um, uh, on the last year of the Buddha's life, on the Buddha's last teachings. Um, and I pulled that out a couple of days ago and started to work on it in, in between the work I've been doing. And then I, I, I realized that, that it was Memorial Day. And I thought, well, I should talk something about Memorial Day. Um, and then I thought, well, can I fit these together? And I'm not sure, so you're, you're the guinea pigs. It's like when my daughter was little and we had this game at <clears throat> bedtime where she could name three or four things and I'd have to make a story out of them, you know, a, a race car and a koala bear and a diaper and an ant or something, and you just sort of have to take all those things and make a story out of it. <clears throat> so I'm going to try and put some pieces together tonight, and it might work and it might not. So, And I want to begin with speaking about Memorial Day, and um, it's a day in some ways of honoring or mourning those who've died in war as soldiers, um, but it perhaps even a, a deeper meaning would be to mourn war itself um, and why it continues. Um, Plato said, only the dead know the end of war. So he was a little pessimistic about it in terms of, I'm not sure that that's the place that one wants to come from. Um, because I actually see... Um, that there's another way. And I think that that's important for us to consider. When I lived at the forest monastery of my teacher, Ajahn Chah, um, it was in Thailand, not in a province that bordered Cambodia and Laos. And that was during the period of the Vietnam War in the 1960s and early 70s. And we could see fighter jets going overhead, bombers at night, and so forth. And after I'd been there for a little while, some friends of mine, I'd worked on medical teams in the Mekong River Valley in the Peace Corps, and uh, some of my friends who were working um, in Vietnam itself for the Quakers there um, came to visit. And at first they were upset. They said, here you are, a Buddhist monk, and these other monks sitting here, and the war is really close by. You could feel it and see it. And what are you doing sitting here and not out with us, you know, doing something more active to protest it or stop it in some way? And they went to see Ajahn Chah, my teacher, and he said, oh, I'm for stopping the war. And they liked that. And he said, but the first place we need to stop the war is in here because we're making war all the time against who's right and who's wrong and what's too big and what's too long and what's too short. And until you learn to stop the war in the heart, you're not going to be able to stop the war out there. He said, I'd like to stop all the war. So that was his answer. They weren't particularly happy with that answer. It was okay. But they're activists, you know. That's what I mean. 
And I was an activist for a time, too. So, But they stayed for a week or, or, or longer. And in the course of staying at the monastery, they began to see something. Because you didn't have to go very far into Cambodia or Vietnam or Laos. And I traveled in those times into, into the war zones. Um, to go to places where people had lost all of their, or lost a lot of their humanity and their common sense, where people would be destroying their own temples to steal things in order to, to get money to save their family, or they would be, you know, shooting people who'd been their neighbors and their friends, and, and horrible things. People go crazy in those circumstances out of fear. Um, and uh, what they saw at the Forest Monastery was that it was like a living library of another possibility. Within these hundreds of acres of forest, there was a community of monks and nuns who lived. And if you dropped your wallet or your gold watch on the ground, somebody would pick it up and bring it into the main temple and save it for you. you know? And if you had difficulty, someone come and say, is there some way that I can help you? And um, the... The, the monks and nuns, the people who lived there, were careful to step over the ants and not step on them. It wasn't just about killing people, but it was really a reverence for every form of life. And what it showed in some way was a possibility in the, in the sea of insanity, of war, that there's another way that human beings can live and that they can deliberately choose to live and, and live in, in society and community in this way. And so it kind of re-inspired the imagination of these people who came and they left back to what they were doing in Vietnam um, I think in a place in their hearts that was much more settled and, 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 and one might say perhaps wiser from having that time there and much more appreciative by the time they left that this too is part of what's needed in the world it's like two parts of the breath of breathing in and out Gandhi took a day in silence every week even in the worst years of <laughs> you know, conflict with the British colonial empire, just to quiet himself and try to have his actions come from the place of the deepest understanding and the greatest benefit for everybody, rather than being reactive, which just keeps the cycle going. Um, We could say, um, in the most fundamental sense, that war is a failure of imagination as a way to solve human problems, and and we all know it. I mean, it's not... But, uh, you know, here's General Dwight David Eisenhower speaking three days before he uh, ended his term, uh, second term as President of the United States, the supreme allied commander of the, the forces that won the Second World War, kind of the most honored military man of his time, He's, when he says, every gun that's made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, from those who are cold and not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. Oh, one of the books that has most inspired me in the last years in my own thinking about human conflict and how we solve it 
um, and that I found empowering, just as the visit to the monastery of these friends of mine was actually empowering for them, is a book called Bury the Chains um, by Adam Hochschild, who's written a number of fine books, um, King Leopold's Ghost among them. And it's a, the story of a, a small group of people in the late 1700s in England when the British Empire at that time's wealth was built primarily on the slave trade, slaving in Africa, carrying slaves in horrible conditions across to the Caribbean, running huge sugar plantations and other things, and then using that to support this empire. And this small group of people got together um, and said, um, not only is this wrong, but we're going to do something about it. We're really going to devote our lives in some way to making a change of this. Um, And it's the story of Thomas Clarkson and William Wilberforce, a number of these people. Thomas Clarkson is sort of the hero of the story, and he, um, he did a number of things. He got a few ex-slaves who were very well educated got them, and took them around into the parlors and the living rooms and the meeting rooms of people in England to speak about their experience on a slave ship or being a slave or on a slave plantation um, to people who didn't have to, hadn't had to confront it right in, in, directly in their own life. Um, he rode on horseback, it said, over 30,000 miles around England for several decades with this whole group of people lobbying the parliament and meeting with people and so forth and envisioning somehow that the empire would continue um, even if slavery was ended. And not long before he died, the British parliament passed a law outlawing, at that point, outlawing the slave trade. Um, Quite extraordinary. And they started with, I don't know, I think it was 11 people who had their first meeting, who were deeply, deeply committed. Um, And so um, it gives me hope, because I imagine 100 years from now um, that as humans we might have found some alternative to war of solving conflicts. And then I begin to think, well, what steps do, do we have to have? What's the vision and the imagination Because people say, well, that's not possible, as they said in Clarkson's day. It's not possible for this empire to not not have slavery. And one of the the kind of most moving moments at the end of the book is that uh, Clarkson was helped a great deal in this by the community of Quakers in England, who, among other things, would not take their hats off to the king. They only took their hats off in church to God. Um, And when uh, Thomas Clarkson died all the Quakers took their hats off. So there's some force of human imagination and vision that we really have to inquire into about what is possible. What does it mean to stop the war between, and I don't have to name the warring parties. I mean, there are so many examples. Um, But I want to be also a little bit more particular tonight. I'll see if I get to this other text. We'll see how it goes, Um, because at the moment the U.S. is a nation at war in both Iraq and Afghanistan, Um, and one of the concerns that I think we all have to look into is not just the war itself, but all the people who are coming back from the war and all those who are left, 
you know, the, there's two million refugees out of Iraq, you know, and all the people whose lives have been destroyed, and all the people, hundreds of thousands, we're going to have three, four hundred thousand people come back to this country who are just back from the war. Um, and I was leading a retreat last summer that I do in the summers in um, Mendocino with a, a number of other men, a men's retreat, Michael Mead, Luis Rodriguez, a wonderful poet, Maladoma Somme, a West African medicine man. Um, and in this retreat, in the multicultural retreat, we um, bring in a number of young people who've been part of uh, uh, gang life, Los Angeles, Oakland, Chicago. They come with their mentors, people who are young men who are trying to get out of the gangs, basically. Um, and uh, on this retreat, as we do, we did storytelling, mythology, um, poetry. You know, a young guy sang poetry, and then Luis Rodriguez would stand up and read a poem about you know, shooting up heroin in the um, viaduct in Los Angeles and losing everything in his life and going into jail and all the things, and read it with so much passion and say, and finally I found my life through these words that the young man would say, oh, here's somebody who's telling my story. Now I need to tell my story. Among the people there, there was a young guy um, who stood up, where people kind of tell their stories as we've been working, we do meditation and all these various things, and then take time for people to speak. And this young man stood up, he was only 16 or 17, the youngest one who was there. And he was really in tears when he finally spoke because he said um, a few months before, he and his guys, his homies in Los Angeles, had been going out in sort of the edge of their neighborhood between the Crips and the Bloods. And um, this car came driving by awfully slow, and they got really worried, and they started to run. Um, And uh, the guys in the car started shooting them. Um, And he said in the, the youngest kid, who was a good friend of his, who was like 14, he was the one that was the last in running, and he was shot, killed. And this young man said, and I ran back, you know, and I held him and the police came and they said, get away from him. And I said, I can't, this is my, you know, this is my brother. I've got to stay with him. And he did till he died. Um, And he was just standing there in tremendous grief and trauma. And um, then one of the Iraqi vets who had just come back from Ramadi or Fallujah, there were several there, stood up. And these young gang guys had admired the vets because, you know, whatever you do on the street, these, I mean, these were ex-Marines coming back and, you know, had clearly been through some amazing initiation. And this guy stood up and he said, you know, you did the right thing. You did the right thing to get out of there and you did the right thing to go back and stay with your guy. And it was dark at night. There were candles lit. We're in the middle of the forest, a hundred and some men, and we'd been doing chanting and singing and meditation. And then the, one of the Marines, who was another one, stood up and spoke about how he said, you know, I can't tell you what I've seen over there. I can't tell you how bad it was. And then he said something more. He said, and I can't tell you what I've done. 
you know, and he started to tell a story after this young man spoke about how an old, older man was coming up to his checkpoint and he kept saying, stop, don't come any closer, you know, too many suicide bombers or whatever, stop. And the man didn't stop and he said, and I shot him up. And then his relatives came out and they said, oh, he was deaf, he couldn't hear you. And so we're all in the room and everybody's weeping. And then Michael Mead stands up and we'd been really working with a variety of myths and stories and he says, I have to tell you a story. He said, in old Ireland, um, there was a great warrior, at least as the myths are told, named Cúculain. Is that right? Hmm? Okay, thank you. Cúculain. Cúculain. And um, he was known as, a, uh, um, or in this particular story, he had gone... Uh, from whatever town or kingdom he was a part of, um, there was an invasion of some other tribe or some other army, and he'd, he'd gone out as a warrior to try to defend his community. And the Irish are historically are kind of insane as warriors. They go out naked, <laughs> bodies painted, you know, with, you know, and, and I mean a kind of ferocity that mostly people just run the other way. Um, but in, in this case, after going out and kind of stopping the invasion, he then um, was so caught up by and so swept up in the um, energy of war. Um, in, he was possessed as one is, like possessed by Mars, if you will, by, the, by the, the violence and the intensity and so forth, that after he'd won the battle, he turned his chariot around and he started, and the, the description is his hair all stood on end and there was blood on all the hairs of his body and his eyes were like saucers and he had all the weapons in his hands and he started his chariot back down to his own village and his own community because he was possessed and no one knew what to do. Um, and then one of the old women in the village said, oh, there's three things we have to do. Hurry up. Uh, so the first was that they, she called all the women out from the village and they made a long line and bared their breasts. And this slowed him down. Right? <laughs> well, that's a kind of a good move, right? And you can hear it archetypally as well because what it's starting to do is, is it's bringing in the feminine and the nurturance and kind of taking the energy of Mars and reacquainting it with the connectedness that comes from your, from your own mother's body and from the love between men and women and all of that. So once he got slowed down, then they took a rope and tied him up and plunged him into a great cauldron of cold water where all the cold water then dissipated. From that, they had to pour the water in a couple times to cool him off from the battle. And then they took him from that and wrapped him in blanket in, in beautiful soft wool and placed him on a carpet in front of the king and the queen there. And for three days and nights, they sang to him the stories, the old stories of warriors who had gone to war and then had come back 
and found their life again and reintegrated themselves into the world and into the community. So here we are, and Michael's telling this story, and these guys are still standing there, the guy from Ramadi, the Marine, you know, and the young gang kid holding each other, and everyone, and the candles are going. And then a hundred men stood up and sang to them for 20 minutes or so, this beautiful African chant that Maladoma taught us um, about coming back home. And really what it was in the, kind of that dark forest, it felt like they were being sung back into their bodies. They were being honored and greeted, whatever they'd been through, and welcomed back into the community of those who are at peace with one another rather than those who are possessed by the gods of war. And to me, it was enormously moving. Um, and at the same time... Um, it raises a great question for us. What are we doing with the people who are coming back? You know, here you are, you're in uniform, you fly back, you get to your base, and then you're back home, you're out, you know? It's like, what do we do with people also who get out of prison? You've been in San Quentin for 20 years, here's your 20 bucks, and put you on a street corner. Um, We need to imagine, reimagine what it means to bring people home from trauma. You know, and to attend to the trauma that the people had there. So th- there's some way in which not only do we, are we asked to reimagine uh, the ways, other ways of solving conflict beside war, but even in the very circumstances we find ourselves now, how do we deal with those who have been in these kinds of conflicts? Um, and how do we deal with the conflicts and trauma that have been a part of our own life when they have? Knowing life is short, says the Buddha, um, hatred never ends by hatred. Knowing life is short, how can you quarrel? (coughs) Hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. What What are the principles and the truths that we have to bring to bear on these circumstances? Not just the mourning of the dead, but the mourning for war itself, and the mourning of of the living dead, really, of those who've lost so much. So now I'm going to try and see if I can weave this together a little bit with a a whole other world of mythology, and we'll see. Um, Because I see in raising these questions for us, um, for you, for me, that there's a kind of empowerment that we need, like Thomas Clarkson or William Wilberforce. What would it take to empower us to vision the end of war? Or what would it take to empower us to vision another way of bringing people back into our society who have been in terrible trauma? Um, And in this particular text, the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, and I don't so often teach texts here, but... um, it's, a, it's an interesting one. Um, it's a whole long story of the Buddha's last teachings. And in some way you could say it's the memorial text. It's the text of the end of his life and the last offerings that he gives. Um, and part of what's interesting about it is that if you read it as history, the Buddha went here and he said this and he went there and said that, it's pretty boring. <laughs> it is. But if you read it as a myth, 
if you understand in an imaginative or mythological way, which is a whole other way of understanding teachings, then um, as part of one of the great myths of human life, humankind, the Buddhist myth of enlightenment is one of our great human myths. You know, there are a number of them, and that's one of the central ones. Then it really becomes quite alive. Um, but it means, again, both stretching your imagination and hearing that it empowers you. It's really a, a, a text of empowerment. Um, and you know it's a myth because it almost starts with the phrase, once upon a time. It does. And it ends, literally, in this is how it was in the old days. And when you hear those kind of phrases, they mean that we're not just talking about literal history, but we're talking about imaginative history and ways of understanding how human beings relate. And the themes of the... And it also has these mythological numbers, like 84,000. There was a king in there who had 84,000 gates to his kingdom and 84,000 gardens and... 84,000 wives, we won't go there, right, or whatever. Um, That's how it was in the old days, right? Um, But anyway, the main themes of it are without the Buddha there, how might we continue to practice and carry the wisdom that was um, taught over the years of the Buddha's life? And how do we have wise relationships to one another? And the theme, again, is empowerment, and it's really a questioning of how, how are we living. And it starts, the scene starts on Vulture's Peak, which is fitting for a memorial kind of text of the last year of his life. Here's the Vulture's Peak. Things you know, rise and they pass away, and this is the way that it is. Mythologically, it's the right place for it to happen. Um, and spread before him are the forests of India, which are no more in, in the Indian plains, but there had been these great huge forests and tigers and all the things that made up that amazing um, subcontinent um, a, at that time. And the Buddha then takes this as the occasion to set up, um, you set up the image of a kingdom of justice, a kingdom of compassion, a kingdom of respect. And it starts in this way. It says, here was the Buddha at the beginning of the last year of his life. And there's a visitor that comes who says, I am the minister of this king nearby. And he was thinking of making war on a nearby kingdom, on the Vajians. And he said, before I make this war, you should go and talk to the Buddha and find out if this is a smart idea or not. You know. Um, I think it's always a good idea before one makes war to consider it pretty carefully and maybe talk to the local Buddhists or whoever it is. Anyway, so the, so the minister appeared. I know it doesn't happen in our country, but nevertheless, the minister appeared and said to the Buddha, I was sent by my king, should we make war on the Vajians? And then the Buddha had in his response, as he often did, he had a series of questions rather than just saying you should or you shouldn't do this or that. He said back, he said, tell me about the Vajians. He said, do the Vajians hold regular and frequent assemblies where they meet in harmony and break up in harmony? Do they listen to one another in their assemblies? He said, yes, they do. Well, how about um, this? Do the Vajians um, follow the laws and the teachings of their elders? Do they respect the elders in their community? Yes, they do. 
Um, do the Vajians care for those who are vulnerable, the children, the, the aged, the young women in their community? Do they care for the shrines and the natural world around them? Do they care for the environment? Um, do um, they practice truthfulness and virtue in their, in their kingdom? And always the minister says yes, and then the Buddha says, if this is so, they can be expected to prosper and not to decline. And the minister says, oh, I guess that means we shouldn't make war on them, um, and goes back to tell his king. And then the Buddha goes on and turns to everyone and says, similarly, if you as the followers of the way of awakening practice respect for one another, listen to one another respectfully, revere the elders among you, um, take care of those who are vulnerable in your community, practice your own personal mindfulness and truthfulness, you too will prosper and wherever you live and not decline. So he kind of uses it as a metaphor as well. So I have a question for you, since this is really inquiry. When you read myth, it really raises questions. Why didn't the Buddha just say, war is bad to this minister, don't go to war? Why is it done in this kind of dialogue way? What do you think? Anybody? Say it again. To connect with the humanity that they both shared. Thank you. Beautiful. Any other reason? Well, if you just tell someone something like, this is such and such, they can believe it or not, but if they come to that conclusion themselves, then they're likely to act on it. If you just tell someone this is no good, they don't tend to listen, but if they come to their own conclusions, it's empowering of them. So that's another good reason. Yes, one more. To assume that you know what's right for someone else is to... Don't means that you don't respect them. Yes, and that's true. And another possible reason is that the Buddha said that the wise, that the ordinary person looks at the effects and that the wise look at causes. So instead of saying, don't have a war, the Buddha is saying, well, let's look at what the cause of war is and what it might be for us to make a just society or a wise society. And if we work on the causes of war, then we can end the result of war. Does that make sense to you? So he's really having people look and inquire into the, the causes and not just the effects. And then this story, this myth, talks about his travels and the announcement of his death and last disciples and all of those kinds of things. And, and in each of the parts of this, there are again questions like this, so I'll raise a few more to you. So there he's sitting, um, and they go from Vulture's Peak to um, Nalanda near Pavaraka's mango grove, and the Buddhist chief disciple, Sariputra, says, there will never be a more enlightened teacher than you. You know, he's sort of saying, there, there, there has never been a more enlightened teacher than the Buddha. You know, and he's just sort of extolling the Buddha. And the Buddha looks at him and says, what are you talking about? Do you know all the past Buddhas? Do you know the ones in the future? How do you know? You know how, how dare you say that? How, what, 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 what makes you think that you know, you know the past and the future? Um, and his disciple, Sariputra, says, um, I know in this way. He said, just as if there was a great walled city that was protected by its wall and there was only one gate, 
And there was a person that stood at that gate and could see all those who came in and all those who left and make sure that what came in was benevolent and what and, and helpful and what was not was not allowed in that. He said, in such a way, I understand that you as the Buddha and all of all humans who are awakened rest in the gateway of mindfulness, the abode of the Buddhas, the living place of those who awaken is the gateway of mindfulness, which is the abode of presence, of knowing what's here and now in this moment, the reality of the present. And in knowing this, one sees that which is skillful and can respond to it. One sees that which is unskillful and can let go of it. There is a a consciousness and a wakefulness and a freedom that is here when we are present. Um, and that this is where those who awaken live. So that's how I make such a statement. And the Buddha says, not bad, you know, <laughs> not bad. Um, um, and what's beautiful about it, they're, they're kind of in this dialogue, this inquiry together. What does it mean? You know, we can think about all the different possibilities that we could know in the world. And meditation isn't teaching you some new knowledge. The meditation and the teachings are offering a way of being in the various circumstances between birth and death and pleasure and pain and praise and game and fame and loss, all those things that happen to us, how can we find an abode that is um, peaceful, centered, responsive, responsible, that that can work with the world and at the same time um, be wise in ourselves? Um, And so this is his response to that. And then they go a little bit further and they come to the Ganges River and the, the rain had stopped and the water was really up to the edge of the banks such that a, a crow could stand in the fields near the banks and dip its beak in and drink from the water of the Ganges. Um, this great flood. And the Buddha says, see there are folks who are making a raft to cross over and those who are making a boat to cross over. He said, and then he turns to them and he said, now when they get to the other side of the Ganges on that boat or their raft, should they pick that boat up and carry it all over with them that has carried them, that taken them across the river? This is this kind of famous parable. And the disciple says, hmm, I think not. I think that that would be a really uh, um, unuseful, unskillful thing to do. And the Buddha says, as he does just so, why does the Buddha say this? Why this is the famous parable of the raft. Somebody simple. Attachment. Attachment. Thank you. Anything else? Maybe helping others as opposed Helping others. You can leave the raft for others. That's beautiful. I mean, and I think in a way that it speaks to the fundamentalism of that time and this time as well. That it's very easy to take whatever spiritual teachings one has, you know, the raft that carries you to the farther shore. He said this raft is like the teachings that we have. Um, and, and reify it and become a fundamentalist about it. And as this one young woman who wrote a letter after being on a retreat and she went back home um, and she had this great kind of Buddhist inspiration on her retreat and then she went back to her parents who were evangelical fundamentalists. Um, And she wrote this wonderful wise line that many of you will have heard where she said, my parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist, but they love me when I'm a Buddha. 
Um, and the difference is whether you carry the raft or not, whether you carry the boat. So you use the teachings, everything that's given, how to center oneself, how to develop compassion, how to be mindful with one's own body and circumstance and people around. They're all useful. But if you take that and try to impose it on someone else or even impose it on yourself, um, it becomes then a burden. So these are the inquiries. What do you do with your spiritual practice? How can you use it without it becoming a weight, a difficulty? How can it empower you? Because all these teachings are really about empowerment. And various teachers, I mean various students then will come to see the Buddha and he travels with with the the disciples wandering around um, in a large company of followers in different parts of North India. Um, And people will come and ask him for teachings and he'll give teachings which he called the teachings of virtue, of developing um, integrity and honesty, teachings of quieting the mind through concentration, teachings of opening the heart, loving kindness and wisdom, um, teachings of generosity, of dana. And he said, these are the things that make us happy. A generous life, an honest life, a liberated life in the mind and the heart when there's not clinging, but instead when there is a kind of inner freedom. And here are the ways you can practice this. And so people would come and they would ask him questions and he would give sort of the same teachings. And at the end of them, he would say over and over this interesting phrase. He would say, they would thank him or whatever, and he would say, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. Why did he say this over and over again? Anybody? Life is constant change, so you, you must always uh, be present to change with the circumstances and figure it out. So life is constant change. You must always be present with the new circumstances. Somebody can't give you a formula, but you have to be present for that. Beautiful. Any other reason why he would say it? Why it's part of this myth? Now it's time for you to do as you see fit. Really what it does, and you can feel it, is it places the responsibility or the empowerment, if you will, on love, liberation, whatever values you have, where it belongs. Uh, nobody can get enlightened for you. Nobody can love for you. I mean, even the person that cares about you the most and would do anything for you, they can't love for you. Nobody can be generous for you. And so the Buddha is saying, all right, here are these practices, here are these understandings. Now you are empowered to do with these what you know best to do. And there's another part in this which is really interesting in which, um, well, there's two little sections um, of it. So the Buddha is then sitting there in the forest under a great tree and Mara comes to visit. And Mara in the Indian mythology is the god that represents the shadow, evil, greed, hatred, ignorance, um, all those kinds of things. And in the myth of the Buddha's enlightenment, the Buddha is sitting under the tree of enlightenment and Mara comes first in the form of all the possible temptations and the Buddha doesn't get tempted, and then Mara comes with all the forces of aggression, and Mara comes with the, and his armies, and then with doubt, and so forth. And the Buddha sits unmoving and meets them all with compassion and understanding. Oh, is that you, Mara? 
um, and Mara finally in that way doesn't take over the Buddha. And you know, the thing about Mara that's really interesting is that Mara gets around, basically. The minute you sit down and meditate, you can be in Corte Madera, you know, or Richmond or whatever, and you sit and you close your eyes, and Mara appears and says, how about let's go and have some ice cream, you know, temptation. Or Mara, aren't you pissed that that person said that, and the aggressive armies of Mara, or you can't meditate, the doubting Mara comes, you don't know what you're doing, maybe you should try it tomorrow, you're too old, to, you're too young to meditate, whatever. You know Mara, right? Mara's. So Mara appears again, and, and he does periodically. And the Buddha says, is that you, Mara? And Mara says, yes, it's me. And he says, now, I talked to you before, and I said, why don't you finish teaching? You've done enough. You know? And you said, I'm not going to finish teaching until I complete all the tasks of um, developing monks and nuns and lay people who have, um, who have the teachings fully and are established in generosity and virtue and compassion and wisdom. <laughs> But now you've done that, Buddha. It's time for you to, you know, check out. And this is Mara's song. And take your nirvana and leave. <laughs> and the Buddha turns to Mara and says, no need to worry. I'm not going to be here very long. In, in not many months, you will, you will be happy to know that I'm going to leave. So now, here's the question. Why does Mara keep coming back in these myths and these stories? Somebody? Can't hear that. To remind us to be aware. To remind us to be aware, thank you. Yes? Isn't it the human condition? Thank you. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, great Russian novelist and, and uh, activist, says, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere else insidiously committing evil deeds and it were simply necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? So Mara comes, as you're saying, um, because it's part of our humanity. And what's asked is that we have a wise relationship to Mara. Um, if you read Thich Nhat Hanh, which is a Vietnamese Zen master, he has this beautiful scene where the Buddha's in a cave and Mara comes to visit him at sometime in the middle of his life and attendant Ananda is there. And Ananda says, go away, the Buddha doesn't like you. And the Buddha says, I hear you send someone away, away, Ananda. And Ananda says, oh, no one. He said, who was it? Oh, it's Mara. Oh, my old friend, invite him in. And so Mara comes and they set out a table for tea. And the Buddha and Mara take tea. And the Buddha says, so how's it going, Mara? And Mara says, it's tough being the evil one, you know. People don't like you and, you know, it's really a, it's a rotten job. Mythologically speaking, I got cast in kind of the... And the Buddha said, you know, it is tough. He said, but I want to tell you, being a Buddha isn't that easy either. You know, in some ways people listen to you much more than they listen to me, quite frankly, you know. <laughs> Or they take my teachings and they distort it and they do all this stuff and they, they're fundamentalist Buddhists, I have to promise you, like any other kind, you know, and they do all these things in my name, you know, and they kind of take tea and say, yeah, it's tough, you know, and it's like, nice to see you again. They're in relationship to one another. Without Mara, no Buddha. You wouldn't have the story of enlightenment. I mean, have, suppose the Buddha sits under his tree of enlightenment or you sit down and meditate and we're all just enlightened. Mara doesn't come. It doesn't happen that way. 
It's actually, no one would go to see the movie. You know, it's really, it's pretty, you need, it's part of the plot in some fashion or other. So, so um, they have this relationship, which we have to Mara, um, and what's asked of us is wisdom and compassion and understanding. So then, Ananda, when the Buddha says, all right, I'm going to die um, in a few months, all of a sudden there's this great earthquake, a terrible hair-raising earthquake of, and thunder and the earth moves. Um, and Ananda comes running back to the Buddha and said, what was that? That was a huge earthquake. And the Buddha says, Ananda is his attendant, his cousin and his attendant. And the Buddha says, there are eight reasons for earthquakes. Remember, he's a list maker, so he likes to make lists. <laughs> And he says, um, when the powerful earth element moves or when the great water element moves, those are two reasons, so the tsunami or a regular earthquake, or when a Buddha is conceived or when a Buddha is born, when a Buddha is enlightened, when a Buddha first teaches and when a Buddha renounces their life and then when a Buddha dies, this is the list, and then you have earthquakes. Uh, And Ananda says, so which one of these was it? And he says, well, I now have only a few more months to live. So why, again, mythologically, why is there an earthquake at these different times? You know, it's one thing when the great earth moves, the earth element or the water, but in the, um, when a Buddha is born or a Buddha is enlightened or the first teachings come, why is this mythological, why is this symbol used? Why what? Why is what egocentric? Why isn't that statement egocentric? Um, it could be. I mean, any, it's an interesting question. Thank you for that. Anything could be egocentric. You know, you could say, here's this book that, you know, and you could do it in an egocentric way or not, depending on whether you take it in an egocentric way. Um, but again, the beautiful thing about myths, this is really more, that's a psychological level, and it's a very fine question. Um, but this is a more mythological level because, um, in fact, people don't say something and then there's an earthquake. This is really speaking in another language. It's a mythological language. And in the mythological language, an earthquake means something is being shook up. In some... So when, when there's awakening you know, or when there's a death at the end of life or when something really powerful is taught, it's as if it shakes the very foundation of our life, the whole way that we see the world. And so, in a mythological way, rather than a psychological way, it speaks to the fact that something really powerful is happening in the psyche and in the world and in the mind. And then here's the, here's the piece of the story I was going to get to when I said, now it's time for you to do as you see fit. So Ananda hears this and he begins to weep and beg and say, Please don't die. We need you to live a long time. We need you to stay around. And the Buddha said, didn't I tell you that everyone who is born dies? I mean, isn't that part of the teaching? I've been saying it for 45 years. Duh. You know, didn't you get it? And then Ananda complains and he says, but many times you said a Buddha, especially, could live longer if only, you know, it could live longer by choice. And the Buddha says, yes, it's true. If someone asked them to live longer, then they could live longer than usual. And Ananda says, well, please, please live longer. And then the Buddha says, um, it's too late. Mara has come and you never asked me. You know? And I gave you a lot of hints at the, at the, 
Black Snake Pool and at Jivika's Mango Grove and Rajgir in the Deer Park and the Coolwood in Tapota. I gave you these hints and you never asked me to live long. And yours is the fault, Ananda. Had you asked me, I would have stayed around longer. Now I read this. This is kind of wicked, right? Now why? You know, talk about guilt trip, right? <laughs> so, but there's something really, again, mythologically speaking, that's happening here when we read it not in a kind of literal way. Um, because the Buddha says, my body is old. When he says, Ananda, you know, death is natural. He said, my body is like an old cart held together with leather straps and it's just barely held together and it's just not going to go much further. And later on in this very same text, the Buddha, in this very same sutra, the Buddha just before he dies, praises Ananda for his care and his good heart and his timing and his sensitivity as attendant and how many people he's taught and so forth. So he's not just into putting Ananda down, but here's this moment where he says, there, it's your fault. You didn't ask me. Now, how can, how can you make sense of that? If you think about it, again, we're really thinking in a different way, imaginatively and mythologically. Yes, in the back. Teachings and wisdom only stay alive as much as you ask them to. Thank you. Anyone else? That's beautiful. Yes? Well, perhaps that, there, that every opportunity given by a sheikh is one that we need to really go for. Every opportunity given by a sheikh where things are shaken up is something that we should go for, that we should use in some way as an opportunity. Also good. Going back to what was said back there, I see it, you know, and I'm just telling you my mythological interpretations, but I see the meaning of this um, uh, as the fact that the teacher-student relationship is not one way. That Again, this is really a text of empowerment. The Buddha is not saying, I'm going to do everything for you, but that we're in this relationship together in some way, and you too have responsibility for this. Um, And the whole theme in this, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. There's something both deeply compassionate and at the same time quite fierce about this. This is also your responsibility. And Ananda, we have this relationship, you know, and it's not one-sided. But we each have to take responsibility for, for what we share and live together. And so repeatedly, over and over, the Buddha is saying, it is your gift to know the teachings of compassion and wakefulness and mindfulness and freedom, and it is also your empowerment and your responsibility and your capacity to take these and make something beautiful of your life. So Ananda says, so who will be our guide when you're gone? Will you appoint someone to be, you know, the second Buddha and the third and the fourteenth you know, like the Dalai Lama or something, will you? And the Buddha says, I will put no one in charge of the community. Instead, be a lamp, be a light, be an island unto yourself. Let the Dharma, let the teachings, the truth that you know be your guide. So this is, again, this is the whole movement of both empowerment and finding a kind of imagination in which we begin to take responsibility for our life in this world and what, what we make out of it. Make of yourself a light. 
no matter how much darkness in the world, be a lamp in the world, in the darkness. Make of yourself a light, be uh, a lamp, be a guide, be an island. These are really beautiful images that place the capacity for awakening, compassion, freedom, right into your own heart and into your own hands. And then someone says, well, how can we know when you say to, to follow, let the Dharma be our guide, let the teachings, how can we na- know what are the real teachings? And the Buddha says, well, there are four ways that you can know the teachings. You heard them from the lips of a teacher, or you heard them from the community, or you heard them from elders, or you read them in a text. Those are, not, those are fine, but those are not the final authority. It is not until you look into your own heart and see these ways of acting and these ways of living um, bring suffering to myself and another, or these ways of living and acting bring benefit, bring blessing, compassion, generosity, uh, selflessness. These contribute to the well-being of myself and others. So the guide, again, is oneself. And then he says, if you want to go any further... In all the things that I've said, look to the very essence of it, the foundations of mindfulness, the Brahma-viharas that teach love and compassion and equanimity, um, the noble eightfold path of wise view, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, very central teachings, and look to see if these fit with your own experience. So a couple more, and then we'll end. See if I can tie them all back together. So the Buddha wandered... Um, and and met up with people and offered these teachings. And he was in a large, beautiful forest grove. Even the travel was difficult. His heart and mind were at peace, it said, even though his body was falling apart. And as he's sitting in in this beautiful forest with his retinue of followers, of 500 monks and nuns, which just means, or a 1,000, which just means a lot of them. Again, it's sort of a mythological number. All of a sudden, the courtesan Ambapali appears from the nearby town. And I love the fact that the courtesan Ambapali appears with her retinue of followers and only the best carriages. And they come, all, come out dressed beautifully and they enter the grove on foot and they pay their respects to the Buddha. And he instructed and roused and conspired and awakened them with teachings on the practice of mindfulness that they too could rest in in wakefulness and mindfulness and see all the things of this world, gain and loss and praise and blame, with a free and compassionate heart. And after he had roused them and taught them uh, the practices of generosity and wakefulness and dignity, they sat to one side and then Ambapali invited the Buddha and the company of followers to a great meal at her home, which was a kind of way of making offerings to this, to, for the teaching she received. And the Buddha agreed. And then she and her retinue left. And on the way out, they passed the nobles of the Lichavis, this local kingdom. And the nobles of the Lichavis were dressed in blue and yellow and red silks and white silks and great adornment. And they came in royal carts and horses and elephants and banners and all made up. And it was really this great glorious procession. And they stopped. And they got on foot and they went and they paid their respects to the Buddha And again, he roused and inspired them and awakened them and gave teachings that taught them what real nobility was, true nobility, which is not their birth, but their inner nobility, and and so forth. And then they said, will you come eat, um, take a meal at our palace? 
And the Buddha said, no, I've already accepted a meal for the time that I'm here uh, from the courtesan Ambapali. And they say that mango woman, which is a slang word for, you know, that courtesan, whatever you want to think of her, that prostitute or whatever, whatever. I mean, I don't know quite, quite how one wants to hold it in that culture. But anyway, we'll say courtesan. They were looking down on her as sort of the worst low class. And they raced after her in this story and said, we are the noble ones, the Buddha should come to our house. And she said, no, no, no. He invited, I invited him and he's coming. And they said, we will give you anything. We'll give you 100,000 pieces of gold. And she said, I wouldn't give you this invitation to the Buddha for all the gold in the kingdom. I'm sorry, he's coming to my house. You know. <laughs> and so they went back to the Buddha and they complained, how come she, this mango woman, gets to do this? And um, he said, well, she asked first. Um, so why is Ambapali, why is this courtesan in the story, besides that it makes for a better story, of course? Any hints? Again, just inquiring to what the empowerment of this myth. Yes? He's like befriending temptation just like he was Mara. He's befriending temptation just like he was Mara. Thank you. Yes? He what? She was empowered to have a relationship with him. Thank you. There's no the uh, law of first and second trumps the law of human status. The the law of first and second trumps the law of human <laughs> status. I I it does it, it, you know but I think there's a there's a there's another law that's operating here that that you're all kind of talking toward as well, and it's it really is the law about who can practice and what are the values of the Dharma or the values of the heart. And the Buddha said it over and over and over in his life, not by birth, not by caste, not by creed. I mean, he was ordaining to be um, noble followers of the Buddha in robes, those who are considered untouchables in that society. And if they were ordained first in time, this is the, the time thing you talk about, then even if the prince of their kingdom was ordained two days later, the prince had to get down on his knees and bow to this untouchable or this servant of the prince who, who ordained before, because the Buddha saw that a just society had to treat each human being with respect. And it didn't matter, you know, he lived in a society as, as ours is, that was plagued by racism, that was plagued by caste, um, and he made a most radical intervention and said, we're going to create an entirely different society where humans are treated not for nobility, not by their birth or their caste or skin or any of that, which is untrue, but by the nobility of their, their dignity and the nobility of their heart. And it really, again, it's all of these are movements of empowerment to you as human beings. The Buddhist texts say, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember who you really are and take these teachings which are not new teachings, they're teachings that you already know, and let them empower you so that you point the way to that which is lost, illuminate a lamp in the dark so that those with eyes can see, these are the kind of phrases, that you set up that which has been knocked down, that's what people would say when they heard the Dharma, and then you pass it on to someone else. And there's something so beautiful and empowering about this, because... um, it said 
that if one that if one practices rightly, somebody says, will the Dharma disappear after the Buddha dies? And the Buddha's response is, if uh, one practices rightly, the earth will not be free of enlightened beings. Um, that the Dharma is good in the beginning and good in the middle and good in the end. So be of good resolve, he said. Be a lamp, be a light unto yourself. Know that even if we're in a time of war, it is still possible to envision another way for human beings to live and take that understanding and act from it in your life. Know that even though we live in a society where there is fundamentalism or there is racism or there are all these other seeds that we humans uh, um, use to create conflict um, and... uh, um, separate, um, that that's not your true nature and it's not your nobility. And remember who you really are, remember who we really are, and take these teachings um, into yourself, be empowered. Now it is time for you to do as you see fit, to take these and live a life that is beautiful and dignified, that honors, you know, this again being Memorial Day, if you will honors those who have died for freedom. If um, Nelson Mandela put it this way, he said, um, uh, we are not uh, really free. We are not yet free, he said. We've merely achieved the freedom to be free. This is an amazing thing to say, speaking in South Africa. He said, we are not yet free. We've merely achieved the freedom to be free. We have the freedom to choose how we live. And the whole empowerment of this set of teachings is to take what you know in your heart and make a really beautiful life from them and to find your own way to do that. So let's sit for a moment. So to end, we'll do a a very short chant, less than a minute. Um, When the Buddha lies down to die at the end of this story, all the trees um, bloom in the middle of this kind of tiny little remote village out in the desert. And, you know, his, his disciples saying, go die in some beautiful castle. Why are you out here? And he says, oh, this had been a, a, a great kingdom. He tells this whole story. But basically... Um, what he says is that any place where the heart is compassionate and noble and where we are dedicated to justice um, and awakening becomes uh, a great kingdom, becomes, becomes the, the, the kingdom of righteousness, if you will. Um, so we all carry that. It doesn't matter where one is. 
Um, this is really what we carry within ourselves. So in India, when you meet someone, um, the, the most common greeting is to put your hands together and say namaste. And namaste means I honor the divine within you. It's a way of seeing the, the spirit behind, you know, the clothing and the body and all that to see who's really, who got born into there. I see who you really are. And the root of the word namaste in Sanskrit is the word namo, uh, which means to bow to or pay respects or honor. Um, it starts many Buddhist texts. And what I'd like us to do tonight before we go out into the spring evening is to chant the word namo nine times. And as you do, you can feel what it is that you wish to bow to on this day. And it may be um, to something in yourself. It may be to others in the world. It may be to those who are in difficulty you want to pay your respects to or something that's beautiful. That will come to you to offer your respects in that way. And then we'll go out into the evening. Na mo na of your heart and your understanding forth into the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.